Hello, and welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook. I'm your host, Robin Hunnicky, and I'm here today with Arshia Bemal, who's going to be talking with us a little bit about the journey of a producer, breaking into the industry, uh, learning how to be on the ground with projects, and uh, specifically working on systems that help increase diversity, equity, and inclusion in design. I'm uh, really excited to have her with us today. Welcome to the program, Arshia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really great to chat with you. Um, I think that one of the things that um, that I, I really like to do with this program is to showcase a variety of people at a variety of stages of their career. And you know, you started out uh, working in the area of computer science and then moved into production and game design. And I just think that your story is really interesting. And what I wanted to do today is sort of start off by talking a little bit about you know how you decided to get into games because it's always really interesting to hear from from different people about where they started. So tell me a little bit about like uh, what got you interested in games? Did you start off thinking you'd be a game producer? Like was that your was that your goal? And like how did you end up where you are uh, today, which is working as a as a lead producer at at Phenomenal? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I, I want to say it was a happy accident. I don't think I <laughs> I don't think I ever envisioned this was what I would be doing. Um, I, I grew up in India, as you know. And at the time back home, games weren't really a thing. You know, they, they certainly weren't something that young girls played, <laughs> um, but they, they weren't really a thing just in my circles. I didn't know any people that paid and played games. Um, so I want to say, I don't think I ever saw myself as a quote unquote gamer. Um, people <laughs> people around me didn't really play games my my first memory of a video game is my dad bringing home a, a console from a work trip and this was a huge deal because i'd never seen anything like it in my life um and we couldn't really afford to have the latest consoles um and i i remember playing mario on it and i remember distinctly that my bedtime changed around that time so I, was made, I was made to go to bed earlier so that my parents could play on it for longer. <laughs> that was that was my my first memory of a video of a video game. But I still like I didn't really consider myself a, a huge gamer. Um, and I, I always loved computer science. Uh, in school in India, you're kind of taught. You, you take computer science as a subject from a very young age. So we had it in school from like all the way from first grade to 12th grade. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's I, I realized that that's unique when I came here and spoke to more people, but it, it was pretty normal for me at the time. And I, I always really liked computer science and I always loved it when we did anything visual. Um, so I know we played with some like early flash tools in school, um, and I always loved that, but I don't think I ever considered games as a, as a career because it just didn't occur to me that humans made games. <laughs> that just doesn't, it didn't strike me. I just didn't question how games were made. I was just like, oh, that's a game and I play it and it didn't occur to me that people are behind them. Yeah, um, I had the same experience. I thought they were toys, like that they came from Santa Claus. Like, I just, you know, they were built by elves in the North Pole. I had, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's really funny. There's something that you just don't realize that humans are making, but obviously humans are making. But games are definitely <laughs> one of those things for me. Um, and then 
I I kind of did the normal computer science thing. You know, I, I went to university. I got my bachelor's degree in, in computer science. I got a regular job in tech. And sort of six months into it, the company that I was working for, the division was getting furloughed. So I was like, oh, okay, um, I really don't like this job. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm working like 12-hour days. I'm exhausted and I'm really bored and this isn't fun. So I stopped, I took a break um, and I started just exploring by myself and saying, okay, if I want to do something for the rest of my life, it needs to be more fun than this. Um, <laughs> so I started taking like online courses and did a bunch of like visual programming courses and stuff like that. And then finally it was like, okay, I'm just going to apply it to a bunch of interactive media courses. Um, and I got into USC CS games uh, and decided, okay, I guess I have to do this. Took a student loan, <laughs> packed my bags and left my country. And, <laughs> and that's kind of how I got into games. That's so, that's so amazing. So when you, when you were applying, did you have any, did you have a mental picture of what it would be like? Like, okay, I'll, I'll come to the United States and I'll be at USC and then I'll just make a video game or, you know, what was your, what was your mental picture at that time of like, what were you, what you were getting into essentially? Yeah, no, not a clue. Um, I had no idea how video games were made. Um, I maybe had like a, an image of me writing walls of text and and things happening on screen, which is my which was my understanding of of video games at the time. I didn't know, you know, like how much work goes into it and how many disciplines are a part of it. Um, yeah, none at all. I walked in. I remember on my first like orientation day at the games program, and I was like, I think there were only two other women <laughs> just a, a bunch of a bunch of men and I, I still remember the first conversation I had at, at, at USC games where I was convinced I guess like everyone else who was nervous I was convinced that this I did not belong there um yeah. the first conversation I had uh they asked me well what's your favorite game and I, I I realize now that that's just something everyone asks. <laughs> um, but I, I, I don't remember what I said. I just said something. And then they gave me a look and they were like, oh, that's not a game. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Wait, why not? <laughs> I guess they had this perception of what games were and whatever I played at the time didn't pass that perception. Um, and then it was, oh, okay, my imposter syndrome is amplified. And now I definitely don't belong here because I spoke to this one person who doesn't think I'm a gamer. <laughs> um, but thankfully, I met more people and, and played more games and got more comfortable with who I am. <laughs> you know, I think this is this is really funny because I started in games a lot, a lot, a lot, lot older, like a lot, way back compared to you. But like I had a similar experience when I first went to GDC to give my first GDC talk. Mm -hmm. It was about it was about talking about my, the work that I'd done on my Sims and some of the comments that I got in my my references were that like the Sims wasn't really a game. And so they were mm -hmm. kind of like, yeah, this is okay, but it probably shouldn't be in the game design track because the Sims really isn't a game. And I remember thinking like, wow, what, man, I, I, maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I should have put this in the, I don't know what track it would go in if, <laughs> if it wasn't in the game design track. But I mean, is there like a adjacent to games products track, you know, like I remember having that thought in my head and then later realizing 
it was just someone trolling and like, you know, there's all kinds of opinions out there. Yeah. You're very, you're very vulnerable to them at that time. Like when you were, when you're first starting, um, you know, did you, did you build games? Did you, did you study games? Were, Were you like immediately like, okay, I have to find a posse of people and educate myself about what really is games? Like what, what was your response to that sort of experience? Yeah. A multitude of things. I think I felt an immediate responsibility to self-educate. Um, obviously, I'd played games before. I spent hours in Minecraft. I spent, you know, hours playing whatever was accessible to me, but I didn't grow up with, like, consoles or controllers. So I felt an yeah. immediate, you know, re- responsibility to play as much as I could now that I was here and had access. Um, and thankfully to university we had programs where we had to make games um so yeah the first class i took we we went around and we we gave ideas for games which was really nerve-wracking for me um but we actually ended up making the one that i wanted to make um and that was my first game that i made i guess at university (laughs) <laughs> it was a it was a game where you play as a little girl who's frightened of a thunderstorm um and she sends out her imaginary friend um who lives in in the carpet and he comes back and gets light for her but it, oh, the, it, the concept is is better than the execution i want to say i didn't we didn't know what we were doing <laughs> <laughs> that's often the case with student games but the but the idea is really great what what, what drove you to that idea was it a personal experience or were you just trying to think of something something engaging or where did the idea come from uh I think I was reading Terry Pratchett at the time and oh yeah and he has a a short story called carpet people I just wanted to make one (laughs) about the people that live in the in the rugs I think that's where it came from (laughs) (laughs) great that's really great so you got the experience of making your first prototype which is always Gut wrenching because you realize that your your eyes are bigger than your stomach. You know you can never yeah. really get all the stuff done. Yeah. Um. You you were predominantly programming on that project at the time. Yeah. I mean, there was only four of us making that game, so I was doing a little bit of everything. You know, I was I was predominantly programming, but um, we were supposed to have roles on it, so I was the producer on it. And so I did a little bit of both, you know, I did some sprint planning and I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but sort of learning as I went. When you were, when you were sort of thinking about that first game, did you think like, wow, this is amazing. It's really happening. Or were you also, or were you instead thinking like, wow, this is a lot harder than I expected. Can you, can you recall the, the, the sort of the impression you had of the process? I think it was a lot harder than I expected, for sure. Um, not that I expected it to be easy. I think it was a lot for me as an as an immigrant. You know, there was a lot of other challenges that I had to face. You know, I was in a in a country where I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any family. We were working really hard. You we were working like nights often. Um, didn't really have any friends. You know, at the time, it's your first year in a new country. I think all of that contributed to it being just a lot harder than I expected. Um, And then also, of course, the multidisciplinary nature of games that I was being introduced to slowly, you know, working with artists and um, modelers and riggers and animators and all of that, all of these things that I was new to um, just made me 
I got thrown in the deep end, basically. I just, I had to learn really quickly. Yeah. Did you, did you have an advocate or someone at school that was like, that you could go to talk to, or did you really just shoulder that burden on your own? Um, I think we, each of us shouldered the burden on our own, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, I think that's kind of the nature of it. You know, you got thrown into grad school and you have to (laughs) sink or swim. I think we each did it by ourselves. Yeah. It's interesting because as someone who works with grad students now, I, I have a lot of I have a lot of empathy for that situation that you were in, and I have been trying to work really hard to sort of talk with the systems inside of the university around the support of the graduate students and particularly for international students as we bring students into campus, just thinking about like, well, exactly what you're talking about. Like, it isn't just that you got into grad school. It's that you are completely changing your context and like even just really small things like comfort foods that you would normally eat, you can't find and like things that you would normally do to unwind, you can't do because they're just culturally not available in the city that you live in. And like, I, I, I often, it's hard. I think it's hard for people to understand that unless they themselves have gone and lived abroad for a Mm -hmm. significant period of time. You know, Mm -hmm. like I went to France and in college. And I remember just being afraid to leave the house because I was afraid I'd get into a situation where I would have to ask for something that I didn't know the word for, you know? And then they would, <laughs> it's not like, the, it's not like the French were going to beat me or anything, you know? It was yeah. just that they looked at you so nasty when you said French the wrong way. And I, <laughs> I am not a good, I am not a really good speaker when it comes to French. Like I can, I can mimic people's accents and I can do some of it, but then when it comes to really speaking proficiently, I'm, I'm especially bad with the past tense, the passé composé, which is like the far past tense, which you use a lot more than you would expect in speaking. And I just, I felt really anxious all the time. Like I can remember thinking like, I'd love to go down town and do X and then just like, oh, I should just walk because if I try to take a cab, the guy will be mean to me. <laughs> I just don't want to deal with it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think I think people who haven't even tried to do something like that have a hard time imagining it. What did you miss the most about about home when you were first in LA? Oh, oh, so many things. I mean, there was so much of a culture shock. It was, it was kind of, it was very, you know, unnerving. Um, I think even even just coming from a poorer economy, the first thing, the thing you do constantly is convert in your head. So I'm, I was constantly converting from dollars to rupees and being like, oh, that's really expensive. Oh, that's really expensive. Oh, that's really expensive. And then you have to kind of get used to not doing that. But um, what else? I mean, I obviously missed the food. Um, I, I missed, I guess, you know, being comfortable, I guess. Um, Because I often, you know, people would say, oh, look at me and go, okay, where are you from? And then I would hesitate. <laughs> um, it's, you know, every person of color's nightmare in America. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Where are you from? And then I go, okay, I'm from India. And then I would just wait for the next, whatever it is that you're going to say based on what I just said. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Which may be like where in India or maybe, oh, wow. Or some awkward question about India. Oh, it could be anything from, oh, I love Indian food to, oh, you speak really good English. Congratulations, which I have heard that one before. (laughs) Congratulations, your English is great. 
Um, <laughs> and you're like, let me tell you about the history of India and colonization. <laughs> let me British. tell you how it's my first language. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, and also, I've been taking computer science since first grade. How about that? <laughs> what, a, what a trip. You know, I mean, seriously, such a journey. So you're like, you're dealing with all this in your first year, and you're also getting thrown into the deep end of production, which I think is just... Like, again, I just think we don't we don't really understand how hard it is for students to transition from undergrad to grad, even after a break in the workforce. Right. Like there's just something really intense about a, a grad program. And, and that's a two, is that a two year program? Yeah, it's a two year program. Or, yeah. So, so it's the same as, as the graduate program that I teach at, at UC Santa Cruz Digital Arts and New Media and a two year program. Right. You get there and then you have what, like a quarter to adjust before or a semester to adjust before you have to like really start thinking about how am I going to leverage my time here and yeah. make this a valuable thing. I've taken out a loan and I really need to generate some kind of prospect before I finish so that I can figure out where I'm going to be living. And, you know, there's so much pressure even in the first first few months, I, you know, in my experience. Was your experience the same? Yeah, I think that what you just said, that was one of the hardest things, you know, the, oh, I have taken a loan and now I need to find a job. Otherwise, I'm I'm done for, you know, um, and, and, and as an immigrant, you only have a certain amount of time to get a job. You can't even really support yourself through university because you're not really allowed to take any, take on any jobs outside of campus. Um, so you're only allowed on campus jobs and at, and at USC, yeah. there are very few and lots of people applying for them. Um, and then after that, after you graduate, you have about 60 days to find employment. So before you get booted out of the country. <laughs> wow. So um, it, it becomes really, yeah, it becomes really intense because those are just high stakes, right? Um, if you have two months to find a job and if you don't get one, you're out. Um, that, that's just really high stakes. And I think most immigrants go to like conferences like GDC and, and immigrant students, maybe if like, but maybe if you're a bit desperate because they are, that's just the nature of it, you know? Yeah. So, you know, as you're moving through the program and you're thinking about this, did you, did you start to think about like, okay, how will I present myself? How am I packaging myself? Like, what was your process as you were getting, you know, closer to that edge of like, okay, I've got to have to go out and get a real job. Were you like at first, like, right, first step is internships or like, what, what how did you manage it? Yeah. Um, so, Sorry, first step was definitely internships, but I, I obviously had a, a dream in mind, I think, because I, when I was in university and playing more games, I felt like I needed to find my place in it, you know, um, having come here and felt like an outsider, uh, but I, yeah. I felt like I found my place in them when I played it's It's a very distinct moment for me when I felt like I found it was when I played Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons. Yeah, I love that game. Yeah, I've only played it once. <laughs> Never play it again because my heart can't take it. Um, <laughs> but it, it sort of made me realize that games are, are powerful tools for storytelling. And that's always what I wanted to achieve. So I always had that at the back of my mind. But obviously because I was under so much pressure, at that point, I would, you know, I was just applying to everything. And that's kind of what I recommend to everyone at that point is just apply to everything because all the experience is good experience at that point, um, which is what yeah. I did. So at the end of my first year, I applied to 
bunch of internships, was lucky enough to be an engineering intern at Zynga. Um, and then that helped me through my second year, the experience and exposure that I got there. What did you do at Zynga? Um, so I was on I was on the engineering um, intern team. I was in the Match Three division in San Diego, and uh, I worked on the Wizard of Oz game that was going on at the time. So I was working on their live ops events team, and I think now that it's out, I can say it. Um, and I was also working on uh, the match three Willy Wonka game at the time. And was your experience when you were there like, okay, this is real game development, like I'm finally in a game team, or did it feel like like this is more like software or, you know, there's that whole thing of like mobile games aren't really games. Like that's actually one of the things that we've we've had in the industry so much. Like yeah. was it was it like that as well? Um I a little bit. I wanna say that it didn't feel like a game team to me because it's a big company, not necessarily because it was a mobile game. Um, I think I yeah. because I was an intern at a really big company, I didn't really get to see all of the wheels turning. You know, I was just given things to do um, and had to achieve them within certain timeframes. But I think Phenomena was where I really got to work on all aspects of games in a professional environment. Well, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, how that happened. So um, you were, you finished your internship at Zynga and then you went back to school and you yeah. finished and graduated. And I believe, and this is, I, this will actually be educational to me because I believe you came across my desk through an advocate of yours, but you had also been, uh, the AIAS had had you as a scholarship winner, correct? At DICE, yeah. is that correct? That's right. Okay, yeah, so how, was... did, how did that happen? <laughs> That's right. So so the head of the, the USC uh, games program, Mike Saida, the computer science side, um, told me, hey, you should apply for this scholarship. I think you'd be really good for it because I was doing a lot of, um, I was leading a lot of projects at school at the time. Um, so I said, oh, okay, this looks great. And replied to it. So yeah, I was lucky enough to be um, an AI, uh, AIS Women in Games scholar in 2017, um, I was lucky enough to meet everyone and, and come to DICE and, and meet everyone. And that's where I met Noah, who introduced me to you, Robin. Um, and I was still a programmer at the time, but I think he, he yeah. met me. He had a conversation with me and he said, I think you're a producer. <laughs> 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 he, he was very correct. <laughs> you know, it's funny because he's he was one of my first advocates as well. And I remember, you know, he, him suggesting me for for a variety of things and always saying, like, when I met Robin, I just knew she was going to be this amazing force. Like, she was a designer at the time, but it just felt like she was going to change the industry. And she had so much passion and she was just such a, you know, a firecracker and just like really willing to speak truth to power. I just knew she'd be awesome. And to this day, like just, just so many great things have come from, from Noah's 
yeah. uh, introductions and sponsorships. So, you know, this is, I guess, a group shout out to, <laughs> no, to oh, Steve, no. one, one of the, one of the true OGs and like really serious advocates for, for women in our industry, just, a, just a fantastic person. Um, and also worked on so many cool games. Um, so yeah, so then we met and I think I was immediately like, well, okay, this is great. We really need production capacity at Phenomena and Phenomena's mission was to hire young people who wouldn't normally necessarily break in at that level and just be like, all right, let's, let's, let's bring you onto the team. Uh, talk a little bit about what, uh, what your first projects were. Yeah. Um, when I, when I first joined Phenomena, I actually interviewed as a, as a programmer. And then I guess you all also saw what Noah saw and said, I think we, <laughs> we're going to interview you again um, as a producer. And my first project at Phenomena was Stickies, which is super fun, um, which is on Mixer Interactive. And we're making a game for streaming, which is, you know, just a whole new world. We've never done anything like that before. Um, and you were a small team of four, and it was very scrappy. It was it was so much fun to design that. We were doing lots of quick prototypes and testing it live with actual players and running a stream and streaming every day. There was there was so much going on. It was wild. Yeah, and in, in that in that project, I think what what I love about what it what it symbolizes for me as a as a project is, is that we had like a really nice relationship with Microsoft. They supported us in doing all this prototyping, but then specifically it was like, it was like a bleeding edge game design for a technology that was still in play. And there were so many moving parts and the creativity really was kind of throughout the whole project, right? It wasn't just on the tech side. It was also on the design side. And even just like in, well, we set up a streaming room at the office and like, had, you know, did, did games and talk with people and stuff. And, even our interns were able to participate. Like Kian was in there. Like we had we had so many fun ways of involving people in the project. Um, talking about it makes me miss being physically in the office, which I yeah. suppose at some point soon we'll be able to get back into <laughs> physical space. But but um, as you as you continued to work on the project, it it became I think very clear to everyone in leadership that you were gonna you were gonna become a leader inside the company and. I think at at, the, at that point, it was like, that was when we started having conversations. Okay, like we have to promote our Shia, we have to give her more authority. And we also have to start involving her in some of the studio processes because it just feels like she's going to be able to really take on a lot more than just the, just the one project. And as we continue to sort of develop the relationship with you, I think what what I what I really, really enjoyed about your creativity was that it it wasn't just limited to like the implementation of the game. Like you thought a lot about the processes behind the game. So like when you were working on stickies, like what were some of the things that you, that you wanted to work on as a producer in that space, like specifically around like dealing with an audience and like being on a platform that was maybe more casual than a typical mm -hmm. console? Yeah. A lot of things. I think um, as a person of color, who had, you know, sort of crippling social anxiety when I came in on actually, um, I don't know if you knew this, but I had a, had a fear of microphones. I don't know if this is a real phobia, but I was really no, scared. I did, not, I did not know that. No, <laughs> I don't know if it's a real legitimate phobia, but I, I genuinely was scared of microphones and I was scared of my, my voice being amplified. And then they were like, Oh, you're going to be streaming. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> Great. Fantastic. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of things. I think a lot of 
me being on that platform was realizing how few people there were like us doing that that specific thing you know so that was a lot of what I thought about is how can we include more people in it um and a lot of the processes that I uh helped make was along those lines like how can we have more user-generated content how can we make it really easy for people to submit art to submit their own prompts um how can we have conversations about things in a funny way that you know people will remember it was it was became more about making memories online and building a kind community of people that was unique that i don't think there was a lot of on in on streaming platforms at the time yeah why don't you describe kind of the end result of that process like what did stickies end up becoming like what was the game design and like and how did it kind of resolve because at the beginning it was just like make a game that a thousand people can play together at once, right? That was kind of the prompt. And then we did a bunch of prototypes and then stickies ended up being the thing that stuck. (laughs) So like talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think the initial request was that we, we find out what the boundaries of the platform were. So that's why we did four prototypes is we were trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And we were streaming those sort of back to back and testing them with real players. And then we moved on from that phase and decided that we were going to take our learnings and apply it to one specific game. The request now being that we have as many people who can play it simultaneously as possible. And that's where we came up with stickies. And we thought that the party game genre would work really well for streaming. So the the idea was that you get a prompt and then you get cards that have body parts on them. Um, that you can then arrange in various ways to make funny characters that fit the prompt. Um, And then the characters that you made go up on screen and then everyone gets to vote on their favorites and the the best characters win. Um, That was the the initial concept. And we started making that more more involved by adding leaderboards and few ways for people to submit content we started reaching out to individual streamers and seeing what their style was what their requests were for the game and how we could customize a game made for streaming for streamers it's interesting because i can remember some of the prompts were like you know i can't believe you wore that to this party or you know like they were very funny prompts and i remember being so excited about about the ways in which the team was really creatively, you know, building out this environment where it felt like fun and safe to have the conversation with the audience. Um, but it it led it left room for streamers to sort of take the take the jokes and the content in a variety of different ways. And I, I remember thinking at the time, like, wow, this could be a whole genre of games that like you don't always want to be playing a really long involved like shooter or narrative game. With your audience, and this would be a way for the streamers themselves, the you know the the content creators, to have their own their own kind of flavor, which I thought was just a really interesting. It was an interesting approach, and like obviously we know what <laughs> what happened with Mixer, so we don't yeah. have to worry you know too much about def- about defending Stickies beyond the fact that it was a super fun prototype. But like, I feel like your initial instincts on that project then then led to some some other systems and and sort of thoughts as we worked on a lot of other things. Um, 
while most of those things are still under NDA, I think it's possible for you to sort of talk a little bit about what, like, like what were some of the processes that you found yourself designing as you continue to work on experimental prototypes inside of Phenomena um, around this issue of like more people like us? Because I think that's something that a lot of people could really benefit from hearing right now. There's a lot of talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but um, as with my last podcast with 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 Chelsea. Blasco, we we're talking a little bit about like from the from the production side at the at the highest level as a co-CEO, what are some of the processes you put in place um, in terms of hiring and retention? <laughs> but like there is a whole other side of DEIA, right? It's about it's about the content as well and like engaging the audience, right? And that I would just be really curious to hear your thoughts on on that. Yeah, um, definitely the content as well. For me, I think it was the realization that it was the the people, the humans, the the fact that I hadn't considered that as a child, you know, that humans make games, but it was it was coming back and it was the humans that make the content that will make the content diverse and inclusive, you know? So it was making sure that everyone had a voice on a team. Um, everyone felt comfortable having uncomfortable conversations which we had a lot of with stickies, right? We, we had a long conversation on what prompts we didn't think would work, what cards we, we didn't think would work. Um, and then carrying that forward and doing that regardless of what projects we were doing, you know? So if, if we're doing a project where we're exploring other cultures, sometimes recognizing that what's missing amongst our voices and finding the correct voices, um, and talking to them and getting their experiences and hopefully translating them into the best possible ways. Um, it was it was both about content and policy as well as about informal structure, I think, for me. And it, it has always been. And obviously, you know, leadership and phenomena informs a lot of the policy and you're very like kind and inclusive already. And it's, it was for me how to implement that. You know, it's making space for people to go live their lives and, and feel feelings, <laughs> but also be able to bring that to, to work and, and have uncomfortable conversations about whether it's some aspects of, of a character design that you don't like for some, some reason, you know, just being comfortable talking about them. And that was something I really wanted for my teams. Yeah, I actually think that like I've had this experience repeatedly with with new hires where there'll be a moment where something will come up and they'll say like I I you know, I'm for example like uh, I'm not comfortable with you referencing this particular work of art or movie because it's like kind of culturally appropriating these things would be would be an example, right? Like this is like I really felt that that was like that particular movie like comes from this tradition but it was kind of whitewashed out of the final thing. And it, it just makes me feel like invisibilized and unseen and like mm -hmm. erased. So could we please not use it in the, in the pitch materials is like, that's a conversation I've had at, at the company or, um, you know, I know that's a funny joke, but it actually kind of reads to me as like slightly inappropriate on a gender level or on a race level. And like, I know you don't mean it that way, but like, I'm worried that it would be taken that way. And mm -hmm. then, you know, and then you respond and say, oh, actually I hadn't perceived that. 
thank you for letting me know. Right. If you feel that way, then probably someone else will feel that way. And so let's not use it. Let's let's do something else. And then the response being, wow, thank you for saying that. And I always just feel so bad <laughs> that, that the, the response is thank you for saying that because it just makes sense to me that if someone on the team is offended or just made vaguely uncomfortable, that that means that it's probably going to happen again because there's potentially millions of people accessing this content. And so in a sample set of a million, like why run the risk? And and then I, I wonder like, yeah, I bet there are a lot of places where that conversation doesn't happen and then they are running the risk and then maybe they get those angry Twitter threads or, <laughs> you know, worse, you know? Yeah. And so to me, it seems like it just makes, it makes business sense. But I, I think it's hard for people to really understand how central it is to the actual production. So like, how do you, how do you scaffold it into say, you know, a design meeting? Um, well, I think we eventually built an environment where people would just say what they thought, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I felt yeah. like we eventually built an environment where that was possible. Um, I think even if I thought that there was something that was wrong, making a space for it if no one had come up yet, you know, saying, okay, we're going to have a meeting about this and we're going to sit down and talk about it um, and what we think. And and sometimes maybe we're going really deep and we didn't need to, but it, it was important that we got it out there and we, we talked about it. Um, that's kind of how I built it into the scaffolding of it is, is to try and talk about the things that I could think of and hope that by leading by example, other people would do the same thing and say, okay, I'm, I'm uncomfortable about what this character, you know, is coming across as, and maybe she's coming across as, you know, too like hollow, competent female character, which is everything, every, <laughs> everything you see in media, <laughs> maybe she needs to have more depth and, and character. And we need to talk about what that should be. Um, that's a conversation I've had as well, you know, so a lot of it is making space for people to see what they think and being uncomfortable is became just a part of the process. And that was how change happens, right? It doesn't happen when you're comfortable. It happens when you're uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it's just, it strikes me that like you went from being someone who was so uncomfortable yourself and like even even to the point of not wanting to have your own voice amplified and then there you are making space for for others to to do that practice and to do it with intentionality and in a space that says it's okay to disagree. <laughs> yeah. It's okay to have creative abrasion. I I think a lot of people try to sort of make everything smooth all the time because that feels comfortable. But like you said, it's you can't grow. I mean, it's just like the exercise analogy is the one that people use the most, right? Like you're not <laughs> yeah. If you're not sore after working out, you know, you probably didn't, you didn't work out hard enough. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> what, if, what have been some of the things that, you know, that you learned over the last few years as you've been putting these practices into place that you think other producers who are in your situation, you know, leading, leading smaller projects where there's a lot of flexibility or looking at, like, for example, a brand partnership where you're engaging with the universe that maybe you didn't create, like, what are some of the things that, that, that they can put into practice in a, in a, in a sort of daily or weekly cadence that, mm -hmm. that help make a safe space? Mm -hmm. 
Um, I found the the weekly retrospective thing very useful for that. Um, I started earlier this year sort of changing the questions I was asking in that. So now I do, I, I do, what are you grateful for? What are you looking forward to? Um, and what would you like to change? And those are the three questions I ask at the end of the week to everyone on my team. And I kind of leave it in open space. You don't have to answer. Um, but it's a, it's a great way to bring forward what we can change in, in processes and also reflect on what we've been doing so far and and whether that's working or not, you know, because sometimes people think things that I don't know them until I ask. So that, <laughs> that, was, that was definitely a huge, a huge piece of it is making a meeting where we have a document where I've asked you two questions. What were you grateful for last week? What are you looking forward to? And what should we change? And what's not working? Um, and just, giving them the space to answer that. That was, that's definitely, I would recommend that if it's possible. Um, I think a lot of it has also been, a lot of my learnings have also been around constantly questioning what is possible in the time frame, um, especially on shorter projects that we work on a phenomenon with clients where there's, you know, expectations to be met and people having different visions of things, especially in a pandemic where you can't sit in the same room and use a whiteboard. Um, yeah. A lot of that has been around, okay, how can we figure out what's possible and still be comfortable and still be happy with what we're going to come up with at the end? Um, so a lot of it has been, okay, well, I can't, you know, no one's going to work 12 hour days to get this done instead we're gonna <laughs> cut it we're gonna cut it in half <laughs> you know instead of doing the whole thing because I don't think the whole thing is possible so that that is something that I think I've gotten better at over the years is is recognizing that it doesn't come from a place of anxiety or like I can't do all of this all of this stuff there's so much to do I can't do all of it but it but it comes with a with a with an expertise i guess um it comes with having done these things and knowing what's possible within a time and yeah sure there's some anxiety in it but there's you know what's possible with your team yeah. in a given amount of time and you don't need to overwork them <laughs> to make <things> happen. <laughs> yeah this is actually something that i think everyone struggles with all the time with all things, you know, whether it's like, oh, I'm going to learn how to play the violin during the pandemic, and then you buy the violin, and then it just sits there. Or, you know, I'm going to do the thing where I do six prototypes this month, and then they turn one of them is going to turn into an awesome indie game, and then you're just like binge watching Game of Thrones or whatever. You know, <laughs> like I've had so many, so many students as well. Like, yeah, I was really going to teach myself this tool. Like, I was really going to learn how to use ZBrush or whatever. And then I just, I don't know, I just haven't been able to get to it. And like, I think especially during this time, it's been really critical to give people the skills to say, you know what, not everything has to happen right now. And I don't need to be super rock star all the time. Yeah. Um, and to create that sense of stability and safety that like, it's okay if we're all doing a little bit less, you know, like it's kind it's of that like expected, inspo post. Yeah. Just yeah. like let's, Let's let's expect ourselves to do less, but to be able to be kind with ourselves about that. Mm -hmm. This isn't really a time for, you know, hyper learning. It's a time for taking care of yourself and your health and your family <laughs> during a very difficult time where everyone's getting ill. 
that's more important than <laughs> than maybe feeling like I didn't do enough and I was at home all day. Yeah, I think this this has been a real struggle for so many people. And I know in gaming and in game production in specific, it's like such an extra burden on the producer to have to manage the sort of psychological damage and the like motivational damage that COVID has created for creative people, right? I mean, we're already sensitive. <laughs> yeah. We're so we're so sensitive. Like what what have been some some go-tos for you with your teams around around taking care and making space for for the necessary as opposed to the desired? Mm. Yeah, it it's been a lot of reminding people to take breaks. Um it, it's reminding people to say, okay, I, I know you feel like this is really important for you to get this done by the end of the day, but you don't, you don't have to, like, nothing's going to go crazy if you don't do it and you go and spend some time with your family. You know, it, it's, it's been definitely really challenging. I think producers end up being part therapists anyway, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we end up being, we end up reading people's faces these days you know that's really hard because it's all over video call um but it's reminding people to take breaks often leading by example um I want to say that often like I feel like oh wow I'm exhausted and then I'm gonna take a break but saying okay hey everyone I'm taking a break today has been really hard I think if any of you need to do that you should do it too um and I think you know as producers, especially a phenomenon, I've seen a lot of us do that. And I think that's just so important because it shows people that they, they can as well. Yeah, it makes me think a lot about, you know, the, the way I felt when I was first working versus the way I feel now. And I can remember when I was first working, thinking like, much like you, like, I was in computer science and now I'm this weird game designer. Like, how did this happen? I, I also remember feeling overwhelmed by conversations, just the, the sheer volume of communication and a game team is so high. And as computer scientists, you're often just like kind of at your computer, like doing your thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Asking you to, to be present and to far, far from being a therapist, you know, <laughs> it's like in that environment, people don't want to talk about feelings. So <laughs> it's really like, you're just like, okay, let's focus on the work and to transition into design, you know, on a large project and then into a design culture that was really formed. I guess, did you feel when you, when you started at Phenomena that there was like a specific culture of production? Cause I feel like there kind of wasn't, but I realized that I've, I've never asked you like, what, what was it? What, did you feel like you were building it as you went? You know, what, what was that? Cause we were really, we were, it was just kind of a very, there were very few people on the team that we considered full-time producers, I think. Mm-hmm. At that time. That's a good question. I think I want to say that, that maybe not the culture of production, but just the culture in general was very empathetic. Um, and over the years, I feel like we have all slowly been building empathy into our processes. And so it has become a production practice um, and a production culture. And it was maybe just a culture before. And yeah, I don't, I don't think there was a culture when I came, but I think we have made it one over time. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's interesting because I think that that value of empathy, like in the core mission statement for the company was sort of something like we want people to be uh, closer to their creativity and their power as creatives, like by playing our games or experiencing the things that we make. And, and then, you know, really over time, just this notion that like, you can build, you can build a company with a diverse group of people, but that company has to also have space for diverse perspectives and that those perspectives also have to be empowered to change, to change the content, you know, to change the the output in a way that feels both reflective and also, you know, empathetic, like that we're not just doing it because someone said we need to make this character, you know, have more depth, for example, like that, that's kind of mechanical in some ways, but like, if you say in order to be able to empathize with this character, she's really going to need to have her own issues and her own experiences. And so we should at least know that before we design them. You know, I, I think that that's, that's really, it's a really interesting point. When you look forward to the next five years of your career, like what are you thinking about in terms of developing, you know, your skill sets? I mean, you've obviously overcome so many hurdles and like really just like, I mean, putting yourself into these situations where you're, you're really confronting the unknown and just doing something, you know, so that you could have a a life that you enjoyed and, and be working on something that you were motivated by. Like, what do you see as sort of some of your, some of your goals now as you've moved into leadership and like, can start mentoring others and like bringing, bringing other people into the, the fold. Like what are some of the things that you think, you know, you'll be doing? Yeah, I would love, I've, I think I've always, always wanted to, to be a teacher. Um, and I would love to circle to that at some point. Like I would, I would love to teach. Um, I haven't really decided how or exactly what, um, but I would love that. Maybe you should teach at UC Santa Cruz. I will <laughs> do that. Do a remote lecture. Whoa, that would, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you could come up with an amazing class that we could offer. So that would be the first to offer you a lecture. <laughs> yes. I would love that. Yeah. I've, I've always great. wanted to do that. I feel like it's a, it's a, I guess what's the word? It's a, it's a vocation. You know, I feel like, I feel like it's my calling. Like I want to, I want to teach. Um, and that's definitely something that's a goal of mine. And I guess I want to make, this is a silly one, but I want to make a game about the ocean because I love the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to make, well, I guess in general, I want to make meaningful games and I want to keep doing that. And I want to make games yeah. that tell powerful stories um, and touch people's lives in, in the same way that I guess brothers did for me. You know, it's if I can, change how someone feels in that day just by something that I helped make, that's pretty amazing. And I would want to do that. You know, I had an idea for a game about the ocean a long time ago that was really about giving everybody a sense of ownership over the ocean. I think one of the biggest problems with the ocean is that people don't really own it. There's no, it's a thing that we all need, but nobody really takes responsibility for it um, because it's not land. And there's this really just, you know, it's, it's very, it's a very difficult thing. Like I've just finished reading. um, Yeah. 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 I, I, I I finished reading a book called Braiding Sweet Sweet Grass by another Robin who's a, um, uh, an indigenous plant scientist. And she talks a lot about um, her people who are from the, the, the Great Lakes region, which is actually where I grew up and their experience of of the changes that came when when Western colonizers came into into the United States and you know to North America and created the United States, 
um, from what was land and just the different ways of thinking about land and how people think about land. And what's so interesting about the ocean is, is that no one's really done this. It's like we have this notion of international waters and then like there's a trash island somewhere in the middle of the ocean. But and everyone knows it's happening like, oh, there are these horrible places where nothing in the ocean can breathe anymore. And it's just it's just like these weird, creepy jellyfish for miles or whatever, you know. Yeah. And this is growing a little bit like um, like annihilation. You know, the idea that there's just this this place that's like slowly growing and taking over other places as oxygen is depleted and 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 or added, you know, depending on what you're looking at, whether it's freshwater or saltwater. And like it's just really interesting that no one that no one cares about the ocean um, as a thing. And yet it's so central to all of our weather and it's, I think it's kind of weird. Like we don't really, we, it's because it, because we can't be in it. We don't think about it. It's like, <laughs> it, like it might as well be Mars, you know, Yeah. in some ways. I mean, it is in some ways. I think people have explored um, upwards more than downwards. That's the common, like, you know, they've explored more of space than they have of the ocean. I think I've heard that before. Um, I, I think they're, they're starting to, I, I heard that there are now protected regions of the ocean um obviously not enough but i think people are trying to to have endangered zones in in the oceans there's like zones that you can't fish in and zones that you can't go to but it's a very difficult thing to do so hopefully that changes yeah it's just a huge system it's just a yeah. very it's a very it's a fascinating system because it's it's so involved and there are just so many territories actually i have, have a confession to make so when i when i'm at home uh, in Santa Cruz, and I really want to relax. I I put on a YouTube of its 4K footage that someone shot in the Red Sea. It's just like it's like two and a half hours of underwater scuba diving footage of just like oh, the most wow. beautiful corals and fish. And I put it on really huge on my television, and then I put music <laughs> on in the background, and I just I mute it, and I just like I'll be like doing my taxes or something, and then I'll look over and I'll just be like, oh yeah, that's a really cool jellyfish. <laughs> yeah, go back to my stuff. Um, in my second year of grad school, I, I made a, a game. I helped make a game about the aquarium. So we did so many trips to to Monterey Bay, um, and I know there was a point at which I just had their live stream in the background because you can they have cameras <laughs> set up in their like tanks that you can just keep on that are live, that are, like the live feed of their their fish in their like kelp forest tanks. It's, yeah, amazing. Well, it sounds like we have a lot to talk about when we get back to the office. <laughs> your, your amazing, your amazing undersea game, whatever that might be. Um, I, I mean, I think that you know one of the things that I, I really wanted to sort of showcase in this interview is just that like there is this really unique pathway into gaming through schools and specifically for you know for international students to come in and to make an impact um, and to become the future leaders of the industry, but that it is also something that needs support, you know, and I think back to that first year when you were, when you were, you know, just making such so many transitions and so many steps forward in this new pathway and just like to encourage all the listeners to really think about like how they can become involved in the programs that are local to them and how they can better support people who have transitioned into industry from a variety of, of places around, around the world. And if you're working with a team that's international to think a lot about accessibility and the ways in which you make assumptions about just all kinds of things in your in your company, you know, that that we can be a little bit gentler and a little bit more empathetic with that experience of 
of taking that leap, you know, because I think it's, it's invisible to us a lot of times, you know, where, wherever you are. Like if you live in France, it's invisible to you that I'm afraid to go take a cab. <laughs> like you said, unless you ask, you won't know. And so maybe by listening to this podcast, you know, people will be encouraged to, to ask more and listen more. I hope so too. It was really great chatting with you, Arshia. I'm so glad that you're part of the team at Phenomena and I hope your story is inspirational and influential um, outside of uh, outside of that group as it has been inside. Um, and we really look forward to, uh, to playing your ocean game in the future. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for The Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.